Well, it's a warm welcome to the new Stack Report. Fantastic to have you back. Sorry, we did drop off the radar there for a little while. It took me a little while to get my act together, get a little bit organized, but thanks to our new sponsors in MJ Bale, and of course, the wonderful sports app in 24, we have got plenty more Stack Report coming your way. First up, former Davis Cup captain and tennis pro, Australian tennis legend, Wally Masur. Welcome to the Stack Report. Wally Masur is our guest. Wally, thoughts on the new digs? I like it, Stacky. This is your lounge room and uh, it's impressive. <laughs> I, oh, this is the studio that I always wanted. At Fox Sports, it was all very like, you know, space age sort of sets and stuff. I always wanted the sort of the old uh, nice room that felt all polished and it looks like we finally got it. Yeah, look, I'm surprised there's not like an antlers head or a moose head on the wall somewhere. And you, you would always outgrow Fox. Like you were never going to stay there. There was always something bigger for I you. I think someone outgrew someone, but I don't know if it was me outgrowing Fox. Speaking of Fox, you've outgrown Fox. You're at Tennis Australia. Are you missing the commentating at all? Uh, yeah, I always liked the commentary. And look, I'll be honest with you, I liked the people I worked with at Fox. I had 17 years there and it was great. Um, but uh, good things come to an end, so I'm working for Tennis Australia and I've found myself in a role that I'm not really accustomed to. It's, it's like a manager's admin role as yeah. much as anything. I'm the performance director, but um, hasn't been a lot of strategy yet. It's been more about just kind of embed some things that are in place and get them right and uh, managing people. So it's a whole new world. How do you go with that, the corporate side of things? Is well, you probably have to ask someone else. <laughs> I'd say I'm going brilliantly, but that may not be the case. But um, but more you personally, is it? How does it compare, like on a stress level, to playing, coaching, working in the media? Look, it's actually been quite stressful because um, there's 66 staff within the performance department, and um, it's sort of an emotional space. Players are very invested. The coaches are invested. The parents are invested. So. It's, it's emotion charged. There's a lot of expectation there. Um, I think some people see Tennis Australia as sort of this bottomless pit of money, yeah. which it's not. We all have budgets and we're all constrained by budgets and strategy has to fit in with those budgets. Um, so it's quite a big piece and it's been a bit of an eye opener for me. Um, there's some elements to it I really like, um, but something that I don't enjoy is um, people's uh, jobs start, people's jobs finish and it's, it's a tricky space. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, I was thinking about this before we were coming into this interview and I thought in that sort of height, what's the, your official title? Uh, I'm the Director of Performance, So I would have which thought, I quite like, Director yeah, of Performance. Yeah, you've always performed very well, well. Um, but I would have thought in a role like that, a lot of it's like um, understanding how to work in an office, admin, that sort of stuff that I imagine you, you'd need to be able to do at a high level and your career to this point has been all around the tennis tool, whether it's commentating, coaching, playing. Is it? Did you, did you find when you got in there you were like, shit. I don't have the life skills. I'm a bit of a Luddite with technology yeah. and IT, so there's no questions that um, there are some skills in this job that I just don't have. But fortunately, TA, I, I'm operating out of Sydney, but I spent a fair bit of time in Melbourne, and TA's a big beast, and there's a lot of people that are probably plugging some gaps um, for me at this point. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to think that I'm being upskilled as I go, and yeah. I'll get better at it. Who's easier to manage, the sort of Nick Kyrgios's of the world or the millennial suits? Well, it's, it's interesting because the, the way we're set up, I'm director of performance, but we've got a head of men's and a head of women's, and then you have your, your Davis Cup captain and your Fed Cup captain in yeah. uh, Leighton Hewitt and Alicia Mollick. So the actual interface with the players has gotten further and further apart. It's more my ability to impact the managers and the heads of various departments. But you've done both. I've done a, like a lot you, more with the players in the, the past. you the young guys and, yeah. and on the court, and now you're managing yeah. the young millennials. But I'm moving away. Like, have I had a lot of contact with Nick Kyrgios and Thanasi Kokonakis or, or an Ash Barty this year? Not a lot. Yeah. Um, and that just seems to be the way it's evolved because the coaches and you know, the Davis Cup captains and the Fed Cup captains, they're working with them almost on a daily basis. 
so the communication tends to flow through them. Um, it's been a pretty big journey to get to this point. Um, you've had a lot of careers through tennis. What's your sort of earliest memory of picking up a tennis racket? Oh, I guess uh, my parents both played, and that's a fairly familiar refrain amongst tennis players. Their parents played. Take you down to the local club, you're bored at the back of the court, what do you do? You pick up a racket and you start hitting balls against the wall. So I think I had my first lesson at eight, um, but it was a different time stack. I never had a private lesson in my life. My, my lessons consisted of uh, 59 other kids. There was 60 of us on a Saturday morning and one coach. Uh, so you can imagine it was pretty chaotic, but he just happened to be a brilliant coach, a man by the name of Charlie Hollis. Uh, Rod Laver, Coach Rod Laver, Coach Mark Edmondson, uh, he's got a pretty good uh, pedigree. Um, and he was, he was fantastic. Uh, I had a ball, I spent, uh, I was in Canberra at the National Tennis Centre there, so I had my first lesson at eight. I think I got down to private lessons where there was about eight or 12 of us, the better ones in the squad, and uh, that's about how personal it got. But uh, he taught me a lot about tennis and, yeah. Geez, you lucked out there, didn't you? Forever thankful to him, yeah, he was yeah. fantastic. Um, at what sort of stage coming through as a young chapter do you think I'm actually very handy at tennis? Um, yeah, I had success as a junior, but that got wiped out pretty quickly because by the time I was sort of 14 or 15, Pat Cash, who was two years my younger, uh, started belting me up. Uh, <laughs> and he was destined for greatness. We all know what he achieved. Um, he was just such a brilliant athlete, even at a young age. I mean, at sort of 17 or 18, he was ready to go. Um, but look, I definitely had junior success. I was involved in Australian junior teams. Um, but just the way things were, I mean, I grew up in Canberra in winter, you didn't play a lot of tennis, I used to go snow skiing. Um, I actually played... What is, what is snow skiing, mate? What kind of other skiing is there? Well, I is guess... That, is that like cross-country skiing? I guess you could have water skiing. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, my, my father's Austrian, so yeah. I started skiing at five yeah. up in the snowy mountains. We lived in Canberra, that was the obvious thing to do. So, yeah, my, my winters were pretty full of skiing, and even through my tennis career, if I lost early at Indian Wells, it was straight to the travel agent and see, you know, what mountains in America I could ski, you know, was Taos or Colorado. And we used to have a trip to Verbier each year before Monte Carlo uh, skiing. And needless to say, I never did very well at Monte Carlo. <laughs> um, Legs are like lead after you've been skiing for a week. I bet. Uh, you're pretty well read. You're pretty well spoken. Um, you're obviously in a very high job now. What, what was the... What was the education like in Canberra as a teenage kid? I just went to a public school. Yeah. Um, I was involved in Woden Valley High. I don't think it even exists anymore. I think it became a TAFE college, and I'm not sure it might be apartments now. Yep. Um, Mum's a teacher. She valued education. Um, I was doing quite well. I played a couple of satellites. So we had a gentleman by the name of Ray Ruffles, a former player. Mm. Uh, Tennis Australia gave him a Toyota Hi-Ace van, and he took 10 of us on a satellite tour. Gympie, Rockhampton, Caboolture, Maryborough, uh, Queen, you know, ended up in Brisbane, and then we did one down in Victoria at the end of the year. This is age? Uh, sort of 17-ish. Yeah. Um, yeah, John Fitzgerald was, was on that bus and a few other guys, obviously, that went on to play, and we sort of just got to that point where I actually collected an ATP point, and I was like, Mum, I've got to go, you know, I've got to have a crack at this. And, um, as I said, Mum was a teacher. Uh, I think she rang a cousin of hers that was lecturing at Monash and basically said, what do you think? And he said, let him have a crack. He can always come back to his education. So, yeah, I sort of hit, hit the pro tour, but I kind of learned how to play when I got on the pro tour. I, wasn't, I was a long way from the finished product. My, my best year was actually age 30. So it was a long, slow burn. 82 was when you turned pro. Um, 83, I was born, so big year in 83. Um, 83, you also won your first title, and it was the same year that 
you were sort of clearly coming through the ranks because you played John McEnroe um, at the quarters at the Australian Open, uh, Australian Open, but I just want to get a feel for what life was like on the pro tour for those sort of first few years to get a feel for what the circuit was like. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I guess uh, coming from Australia at that time, we had a lot of good older Australian players on the tour. John Alexander, Mark Edmondson, Kim Warwick, Phil Dent, uh, not to mention the Bob Giltons, Ray Ruffles of the world. And they were terrific to the younger players. When I was a youngster, uh, Paul McNamee gave me the keys to his London apartment. He wasn't there, he just gave me the keys. Uh, Kim Warwick was involved in an academy down in Florida. We were always welcome there. I lived with John Alexander for a year. Uh, well, it actually was, he invited me up to practice for a week from Canberra. That week turned into nearly a year living with him. Uh, he played doubles with me as a top, when he was in the top 10. I had no ranking, as did Kim Warwick. So they took a real paternal interest in the young players coming up because there wasn't a lot of structure. There wasn't a lot of funding from TA. There wasn't a lot of programs or, or federation coaches to oversee your progress. There was Neil Fraser in the Davis Cup and then it was make it on your own. So fortunately for me, a lot of those older Australian players were, were yeah, wonderful sort of mentors. Um, and John Alexander in particular was really good to me over a lot of years. Not, not just getting through the early years of the tour, but just helping you with your life playing doubles with you, practicing with you. And uh, I remember John took me down to Orange County in California. I was probably 19 years of age. And he said, you need to spend a week with Casey, Ross Case, fantastic uh, doubles player and singles player over the years. And Casey just worked with me for a couple of weeks, didn't charge me a cent. Uh, and all of that knowledge that had spilled down through Harry Hopman, through Neil Fraser, through all the Australian players, they just gave to me free of charge. And yeah, it was unbelievable. Was it John Alexander who you looked up to the most? Uh, yeah, like I, like I say, Kim Warwick played doubles with me in Taipei. Um, uh, my very first pro doubles tournament, I had no points. We got a wild card uh, through Kim's connections. Uh, we won the event, uh, beat the Gullickson brothers, I, I seem to remember, and I never had to play qualities in doubles ever again. Uh, Mark Edmondson played with me in Bristol. We lost the, in the final there. So all of a sudden I had a ranking. Um, mm. is, this is pretty key for a young kid coming through. So whilst you're trying to push through in singles, Doubles is pretty important because you're getting matches, time on the match court, you're making a bit of money. Uh, so to have that sort of a leg up was absolutely huge. So I, I can't thank a lot of the older Australian players enough. Uh, I can tell you playing doubles with Edo the first time is scary. He's a pretty intimidating character. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather be playing against him than with him sometimes. But, you know, all jokes aside, we were very, very fortunate. And I had a group of great mates, Brad Druitt, John Fitzgerald. The camaraderie amongst us was terrific. If someone was flying a little bit too high, they got dragged back. If they were sinking down a bit low, they got lifted up. Um, and those was guys... Was that just in the Australian circles or was that a wider Oh, look, I would say that a lot of the countries operated that way just on the basis that no one had much support. No one had family, friends, wives, girlfriends, coaches. It's kind of a bunch of guys out on the tour. Um, and the, the players that I played with, we ended up playing Davis Cup together, lifelong friends. First guys I ring up for a beer or a game of golf now. It's... That's awesome to hear that camaraderie. Um, on your sort of recommendation, I read a book called uh, A Handful of Summers, Gordon... Gordon Forbes. Gordon Forbes. Yeah. And Did you enjoy that? I loved it. Yeah, it was it's excellent. It's a great yarn, isn't it? It's loose. Yeah. He's wild. Like, what, what era are we talking? He's like Labor's era, 60s. It's coming just before pro tennis. So he's talking, yeah. you know, into the 60s as yeah. you're heading into, you know, Labor won his, um, his last slam as an amateur. 
um, and you, you're starting to get into the year of professional tennis. But what interested me about it was the way they sort of had these extremely tight budgets, sometimes they'd have money from federations. Was that something, and the camaraderie that was built around that, the way they would sort of all pull their funds, is, is that something that happened in your era? Yeah, absolutely, um, rooming together. Yeah. Because, uh, no, these days there's hospitality at a lot of the events, so basically, uh, whilst you're in the tournament, singles or doubles, your room is paid for. Um, sometimes it's just paid for for the whole week. Um, back then, of course, you just got as many people, you tried to amortise costs as best you could. Uh, yeah, you hired cars and drove vans and um, slept in some pretty unusual places. Yeah. So what, Tennis Australia give you an allowance? Let's no, say they no, give, no, what, no, no. So, where's the, so who gives you the, the tournament gives you, you money? You're playing for your dollar. Yeah. And that's, the first rounds were very, very competitive. Yeah. Because it was all about, yeah, surviving. Yeah. Um, I was so always- So what, are you sharing rooms with like 50 or whatever? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Add? And you would pray, you would absolutely pray that your roommate would keep winning. Because if they didn't, invariably they would go out and get on it. Yeah. And come home at three in the morning, and you're like, oh God, I've got to play tomorrow, can you shut up? Um, <laughs> yeah, so you would, you would pray that they would keep going as well. Um, best story of your roommate stitching you up in that regard? Oh, geez, I've roomed with a few guys that lost early. Um, I won't mention any <laughs> names. And you know, I, I had one guy room with me and he got so hammered that he didn't get out of bed for a week. And he, all he requested from me was an orange juice in the Herald Tribune each morning. Uh, which was kind of interesting because he was an older Australian player and I thought, I was pretty young, I thought, gee, this doesn't seem very professional behaviour. So I would say to him, i say, mate, I've got to play David Pate today or Brian Teacher. Do you know anything about them? He'd go, yeah, look, the guy cannot serve wide. Uh, and, if, you know, and if you serve wide, hang on the backhand volley because he goes line every time. And I ended up winning the tournament on the back of this bedridden guy's <laughs> coaching. So it was slightly, you know, slightly different. What but was I, the tournament? It was Hong Kong. Hong Kong. That first, was your first, first title, win. 83. Yeah. yeah. Which is a nice segue back to 83 and John McEnroe at the Australian Open. I can't imagine you were, what, 18, 19? Yeah, I guess I was 19. And uh, McEnroe, you've got to understand there's a few John McEnroes. There was the John McEnroe pre his mid-career hiatus and then post. He was never the same post. But pre, he was brilliant. And this and is pre? Pre. Yeah. So I play, he, won, I play, he wins Wimbledon in 83, so you yeah. must be in fair nick. He was in good nick. So I played him at both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And uh, it was amazing. I got cleaned up big time. I was in the quarters. I wasn't playing badly, but he was just, it was a different league or 10. Uh, he cleaned me up and it was just a lesson in the art of tennis. He met the ball so early. He had short swings, incredible deception, incredible sleight of hand. You know, I thought I had a reasonable serve-volley game. I would serve, I would volley, he would volley my volley. It was all just happening so quickly. Um, and I'd have to say, up to that point, I'd never felt as uncomfortable on a tennis court. So off balance. Um, and I read some, well, it's not my line, I read it from someone, and they described Lendl as, as beating you to death with a sledgehammer. McEnroe was death by a thousand cuts. And that's what it felt like. You just bled to death very slowly out there with no real say in the match. Did it hurt you mentally for a while? No, no, it was fantastic. It sort of opened up what was possible and where I needed to get to, um, what my deficiencies were. And I think that was probably, you know, one thing, Stacky, that I was pretty good at, and um, someone once called me a bad loser, and I said, look, I lose every week. I'm not that bad, I do it pretty well. Um, you know, one thing, I, I, I didn't dwell on a loss too badly. Yep. I think I was pretty good at going, I think I was reasonably honest with myself, saying, well, this is where I got beat, what do I have to do to get better? Um, I will tell you about the one loss that hurt me the most. We'll probably get there eventually. Let's do it now. Matt Swalander, the first Davis Cup match I ever played, just beat me badly. Yeah. Badly. So you've got to remember Matt's, in like 1985, had suffered, you know, there's been a few Davis Cup losses to Australia, courtesy of Pat Cash. Yep. 
And I think I paid for Cashy's sins. Yeah. Matt's was on a mission, my first Davis Cup match. I shouldn't have played. I wasn't actually good enough to play. McNamee lost a kidney. Yep. Pat Cash had two fused discs in his back. Uh, Mark Edmondson was slightly injured. So all of the players that should have played in front of me were injured. Yeah. So I got my debut by default. I was far from ready. Did you feel ready though? No. No, I didn't. Yeah. Because to make matters worse, I was so nervous that two weeks prior, when it was pretty apparent with all these people injured, I was going to yeah. get a gallop. Yeah. Um, I ended up getting like this massive back spasm in Barcelona. They actually had to cut the shirt off me. I was so, it was like rigor mortis. And I, I wasn't actually ready. I wasn't ready to go in so many ways. So I got cleaned up, toweled up by a much better player on very slow clay. Mats was the reigning French Open champion. Um, and that hurt me because it had been my dream to play for Australia. And you hear all the great stories about the Australian Davis Cup players and what they achieved. And you sort of think, well, maybe I That'll can be, me one be a part of that. Yeah. Uh, and it was just an absolute awakening. Um, but in a lot of respects, yeah, I, I dwelt on, I, you know, had to deal with that and I, you know, wasn't, wasn't pleasant for a, for a number of months, but it made me a better player ultimately. Let's go to a happier time. You talked about losing to John McEnroe on one end of the spectrum. What about the delight of beating John McEnroe's centre court Wimbledon? Was, he wasn't the same player. He wasn't the same he was player. He the same person. He was the same person. And um, yeah, you can only beat who's in front of you, can't you? Yeah. Uh, I was a better player at that time, yeah. I, I'd advanced, I'd gotten better. Um, and look, I suppose the thing that was enjoyed was centre court of Wimbledon. It's a great court. Yeah. You know, to say you beat John McEnroe on centre court, uh, albeit Mark two, not Mark one, John McEnroe, hey, you gotta take those wins, Stacky. Mate, I was yeah. covering Wimbledon with you. Uh, I had the good fortune of doing um, three years with you at Wimbledon. And, um, the, I remember saying to you, and this was shame on me for not having done my research at the time. Well, actually, well, I can't remember. You had a big win here at Wimbledon, didn't you? Who was it? And you were like, yeah, that court there, John McEnroe. I was yeah, like, I'm surprised. That's good bragging. Yeah, you were born in 83. I'm surprised you didn't. Yeah, five, five, I should have been at up watching four years it, of right? age, you should have remembered that. Yeah, uh, but come on, that, you, don't sell yourself short. That must be yeah, well, a special look, moment. Yeah, I did. It, it absolutely was. Um, yeah, I remember uh, I went home. I was just renting an apartment actually on my own at Wimbledon that year. And... Uh, I don't in know, the village or in the village, in yeah. And I, I don't know what I was doing, but I took a racket out of my bag and I was rehearsing my serve that night. I must have been so pleased with the way I served. And I remember I, I put it through a chandelier. So I, <laughs> I knocked the chandelier out of the roof and it cost me like a thousand quid, uh, you know, which was about my prize money for that particular match. But um, no, that was a, it was a good memory. Is it your favourite Wimbledon memory? Um, you know, the funny thing about Wimbledon is I, so, I desperately wanted to play well there. It was grass, that was my surface, um, albeit low bouncing, very green, um, very slick yep. at the time, whereas the Australian grass was much harder and faster and higher bouncing, which I seemed to suit me better. Um, but you know, I never played well at Wimbledon and I played well there one year, like really well for, for me. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I had some good wins and I, I think, you know, I ran into a good player in the fourth round. So I made three fourth rounds, which was my best results, but I felt there was a couple of years there where I was, you know, potentially had some good draws and didn't take advantage of them. Um, tell us about the tour ecosystem at that time, because we, I mean, we think about it now as though it's full of star-studded names like Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. Um, wow, there were some all-timers cutting around at the same sort of period as you. Um, Becker, uh, Lendl, Edberg, Verlander, McEnroe. What's it like? Is it collegial? Is it standoffish? Um, it's interesting you say that because obviously Rafa and Roger are, well Roger's an absolute superstar isn't he, there's no doubt about it, um, and Rafa's certainly in that league. But I, 
I guess at the time when I first started playing, you, there, there was Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg was huge. Yeah. You know, and I think people forget just what a star he was back in the day, and uh, he had a, such a charisma about him and the way he dominated Jeez, the French in Wimbledon. He was a good-looking rooster. And then, obviously, John came, and he was the antithesis of Borg, Fire and Ice, and they played that incredible Wimbledon final in the early 80s. And uh, Jimmy Connors was one of the more charismatic, forceful people I ever played against and got to know. And then, you know, on the back of that, along came Lendl, along came Becker, along came Ed Burke, and uh, there was always, there always seemed to be a cast of superstars. So whilst we talk about this golden era that we've experienced over the last decade with Roger and Rafa, I always felt like Sampras and Agassi, it was, it was always there. There was always some great rivalries to yeah. drive the game, no doubt about it. And um, Tony Roach worked with Ivan Lendl for a lot of years, and I knew Roachy well. And I was pretty good at um, just having my hand up and being available for practice yeah. uh, with Ivan, you know, whether it be in Australia or in Europe. And um, with my relationship with Roachy, I got to know Ivan well over the years, and he's a great gentleman. Um, and I, I played Jimmy Connors on centre court at Wimbledon on a couple of occasions. And the first time I played him um, after the match, his mate or advisor or strapper or whoever he was came over and said, would you like to train with Jimmy on the off days at Wimbledon, so seven matches over 14 days. Every second day I met Jimmy at Queen's Club at 11 o'clock and we just played for an hour, full tilt. And uh, Jimmy would speak to me for about five minutes before. <laughs> We'd have this incredibly intense hour in between matches at Wimbledon. Yeah. And then he'd speak to me for about five minutes after, so he skipped. So he'd have a bit of a chat to me before and a bit of a chat to me after. But it was the hour on court, uh, you know, as a, I was a, as a youngster, I walked away and I went, there is no difference between Jimmy Connors in the match and Jimmy Connors on the practice court. And that was a bit of a revelation for me, that there's only one way to operate if you want to be good. Uh, and I got a two-week lesson right there. Full tilt. Yeah. Yeah. Good Brutal. Bloke. Good bloke, J Jimmy Connors, uh, not so much. I reckon Jimmy's a good bloke, but don't get on the wrong side of him. <laughs> yeah. I think he'd be pretty ruthless. I bet he would. The thing I always find interesting about tennis is um, how personal it is. So you play these guys, you get beaten, you got to go to the net, you got to shake their hand, and then you see them the next week. How... I imagine that it's got to be tough on the ego as well. Um, yeah. I, is that I, kind of a weird... Tennis players are a bit like onions. They wrap themselves in layers to protect yourself. Because if you, if you lose every week... Like Federer's lost 287 times in his career yeah. or so. That's a lot for a very good player. Best of all time. Mm. So for the lesser ranked players, if you're batting 50-50 in your career, you're probably going okay. Um, so yeah, you do have to wrap yourself in cotton wool a little bit so the ego doesn't get too destroyed and that that may be the role of a good coach just to keep the the athlete or the player somewhat buoyed when they they have those defeats but with that there has to be a certain amount of honesty too you can't make excuses but no but they love an excuse don't they because oh, tennis players love an excuse because it deflects everything yeah. from them but at some point somewhere you've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror or have that robust conversation with a mentor or a coach that is honest doesn't have to be a long conversation, but it has to happen. If it doesn't happen, you'll probably never be the best you could be. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, I've only been lucky enough to cover a few majors, but it seems as though there was, you get these supremely talented players. It doesn't matter if it's uh, Federer, Novak, uh, Kyrgios, whoever. And if they lose, it, uh, there's an injury niggle or a call didn't go your way. There's always, or the box haven't warmed you up properly or whatever. Um, and it seems to me like a, just a defence mechanism, but I would have thought yeah. it's extremely necessary defence mechanism. Yeah, as I say, as long as, as long as at some point within the 24 hours after a loss, there is one honest conversation about why you lost. 
so that you can do something about it to remedy that situation. And I probably look at Rafa as, as the benchmark, as someone who's not afraid to turn the spotlight on himself and say, well, I need to do X, Y, and Z to get better, and I'm prepared to do anything to do it. Um, but it, it's, it's an interesting sport, an individual sport. Um, I played a few team sports when I was young. Yeah, and I, I guess most of the players that gravitate towards tennis, they must enjoy that aspect of it. 87 Australian Open, 93 US Open, semi-finals, that's as deep as you got into a slam. Were they your best chances to win a slam? Yeah, but I was a long way away. Um, 87, I got to the semis of the Australian Open, and I th- I'm going to say I beat Becker that year. Mm. I think he, yeah, I did. Mm. I reckon it was Becker. Um, so I was travelling pretty well. But I played Becker, beat him in five, got up the next morning to play a guy called Kelly Everton because of a rain delay. He'd beaten Kevin Curran, which I thought, woohoo, here's my opportunity. Curran's gone because I had trouble against Kevin Curran. So Becker, five sets late at night. Next morning, 10 o'clock, Kelly Everton, I beat him in straight. And then I played a five-set doubles match that afternoon. Here's the excuse, Stacky. Why, why are you not playing? Why are you playing doubles, man? Yeah, what? Well, I was, I was in the quarters. So it was 13 sets in two days or within 24 hours. Yeah. And uh, I had a day off, and I came out to play Stefan, and I felt like an old man. So here's the excuses, see? That's why I lost. <laughs> but the reality is, Stefan was a better player than I was. Uh, I had a lot of trouble against him. We had some tight matches. That was not a tight match. He beat me in straight. Had I beaten Stefan, it was cash. Two guys I had a lot of trouble against, on grass in particular. So whilst I was close, close but far away, and at the US Open, Monsieur um, plays Pierline, and Pierline beat me like 9-7 in the Wimbledon Fourth round that year, I had a good Wimbledon, but Peeling got me. And I had played a really good match just prior in the quarterfinals. Um, I beat a guy called Magnus Larsen who had beaten Becker. And I, I just played a really clean match. Like for me, it was just probably the best match I ever played, to be honest. Mm. Um, really clean. And I thought, you beauty, I'm just, it's, I'm, I'm on. I'm ready. And I came out two days later and it was windy and I was scrappy. Peeling was scrappy too. It was difficult conditions. Yeah, Senna Court, Arthur Ashe. Yeah. yeah, but it, no, it was Louis Armstrong back Louis in Armstrong. the day. No, okay. Arthur Ashe. We're yeah. going back a few years. Um, Peeling slightly bigger than me, slightly stronger, slightly better athlete, and that was the difference. Um, yeah, it was it was incremental, but he, he was too good. But the reality was, Pete Sampras was waiting on the other half of the draw. Now, you know, I, I played Pete a few times, and I reckon the night before Pete played me, he would have given about eight seconds thought to the match. He was better, just better. Oh, you never know. Yeah, I played him tight because Pete would let you play him tight. He, he, he didn't have this sort of killer instinct. He would kind of amble through matches and it was almost like, oh, it's four all, I better put the foot yeah. down. You know, that was Pete. I had a couple of, I had a three-setter with him close and it was almost like, oh, geez, I better do something. He just had these gears to go to um, and obviously, um, you know, on the back of that brilliant serve, which was the best serve I've ever seen, it was hard to, to get into those games, so you're sort of scrambling to hang on to your serve and stay relevant on the scoreboard, and then Pete just had a gear to go to. The closest I've ever seen you to losing your temper was when you were captain of Davis Cup, and I came back from a Bernard Tomic press conference at a slam, and I told you that he had told us um, whether or not he was going to play, and uh, you looked at me and you like sort of nodded and you went, no, he, he, no, he didn't, did he? Really? Did he really, did he really tell you? Uh, yeah, I went, yeah, yeah, he said, here's the reason, I can't remember which um, it was, and you, <laughs> he just looked at me and you went, fuck. <laughs> and I thought, maybe, I maybe thought, I did. Yeah. I thought, well, he's going to absolutely blow his top here. Yeah. Because um, that, uh, that was the closest I ever saw you to losing your temper. It, he actually hadn't told us, regardless. But right. 
You were pulling my leg. Yeah, I was, but... You got a reaction. Yeah, I got, almost, almost got a reaction. But the closest I saw... So that was the closest I saw you do it, losing your temper. But um, your playing days are littered. You had a bit of a temper. Um, I... Well, I guess every, I think everybody does. But, like, your top... I went through and listed what I consider to be the top four you losing your tempers. Mm. And they're, like, spectacular. Mm. You... I mean... Tell us about the time you ripped the umpire's microphone. Yeah, out. I had look. My problem was Stacky that I didn't let a little bit of steam off as I was going. <laughs> um, that was my problem. And so what would happen is it's like a kettle. It would just I would just sometimes reach a terminal point. Um, but thankfully there was not a lot of social media, and quite often I was out on court thirteen. Yeah. But I did a few things I'm not very proud of, and I find it interesting yeah. that I now sit as director of performance, and of course I've worked for Fox Sports, so. When we have some Australian players that do certain things, everybody sort of wants me to sit in moral judgment. And I sort of think, wow, I don't know if I'm the arbiter of right or wrong necessarily, because I did a few things that would make what they're doing pale into insignificance. Uh, I actually did rip the mic- microphone off the umpire's chair and I bounced it into the crowd. What if what elicited this response? Yeah, fourth round of the US Open, big match. I was playing Jamie Morgan, young Australian player, and I just was so desperate to win that match and I wasn't winning and I got a really bad call and a big point uh, argued with the umpire within reason and then he told me he, he, he instead of saying Mr. Masseur let's play he said Mr. Masseur be quiet I think he just chose his words badly mm. and I was a bit like be quiet me be quiet so I ripped his mic I said you be quiet um, it's silly how did you not get DQ'd I got a big fine okay got a big fine it was bad it was not yeah. a good thing to do and the umpire, we played the rest of the match with no microphone. We're going to hear William Saw's three other great blow-ups after this break. I hope you're enjoying the Stack Report, brought to you by MJ Bale. We couldn't possibly do this project without them. They've been good enough to give us a space, a setting to record in. It looks pretty schmick for those of you looking on video. On top of that, they give us some fantastic suits for myself and our guests. And also a big thank you to 24, a great sports app that's really changing the landscape of Australian sports media. Make sure you download the app. But for now, it's back to the Stack Report. So that was when you ripped uh, the microphone from the umpire's chair. That made a, that made like a top five U.S. Open blow-ups. Blow-ups, yeah. I, I made it onto the disc. Is there? A, what about the time a match finished and you snapped a racket and you got done for racket abuse, but the match was over? Well, I kind of was. I, I had lost a match in Miami. Yeah. And uh, you know, probably a match I felt I should have won. Miami was a big event at the time. It still is, obviously. Uh, so I, I shook hands, you know, shook the umpire's hand, sat at my chair, and I broke a racket. I just thought, of, before I put it in my bag, I broke it. Yeah. And um, the umpire said, warning, Mr. Masseur. And I said, what? The match is over. How, how can you warn me for that? It's done. We're done. So this is my private time. He goes, no, you're on the court. It's considered, you know, part of the match. I was a bit like, I don't believe you. So I grabbed another racket and I broke it. And I said, so what's that? What, is it a point penalty because the match is over? Like, I was just being a total smartass. But... You get in those situations where your mind just races. So anyway, I went through five rackets. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. Well, I was going, what now? What now? What's next? What's the next step? Is that the set? Yeah, but the match is over, you idiot. You know. Anyway, um, yeah, so it was just like $1,000 a racket. And I walked in, it was like, five. I was like, oh, no, that's my prize money. Uh, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> my own worst enemy. It? Oh, yeah. But yeah. I mean, you rolled up to the next tournament. Yeah, yeah, no, I got a fine. They put the, the, they put the fines up on the, um, on the wall of the locker room. Mr. Masseur, you know, blah, blah, blah. Masseur, Masseur, Masseur. kidding, you're kidding. You know, what a costly, you know, being a smartass was costly. But look, probably the funniest thing I ever witnessed, I played doubles with a guy by the name of Brod Dyke, who was a bit of a loose unit. We played for about three years. And 
we were having this really lively doubles match at Wimbledon and Broad just felt like we were getting, in the days before Hawkeye, you know, getting a lot of bad calls and big opportunity was slipping and Broad just was getting so wound up and at Wimbledon, they have these umpires' chairs with really big pneumatic tyres. Yeah. So that it, in, when it rains, they can get them yeah, off. Yeah, they wheel them off. Yeah. Broad actually wheeled the guy off mid-match and said, you were doing such a bad job, and he wheeled him off. And I was just watching this, my jaw dropped in like absolute <laughs> disbelief. And of course, we both got a massive fine. I would have yeah. thought you would have copped a DQ. Yeah, we didn't get DQ'd. He, uh, he, he umpired from about two metres further back. But it was, I was just... Well, he stayed there. Yeah, I was in shock, yeah. It was deep in the fifth set. I was in shock, but... So yeah, I was involved in a few things that I was not proud of. So I do find it interesting uh, if people look upon me as the you know the moral compass for tennis. One more thing that you're not proud of. Well, I don't know. You may be proud of it, maybe not. So you, you played obviously a lot of doubles throughout your career. What happened in I think it was Hong Kong when you went head to head with your doubles? Oh, that was terrible because he, he was a mate. We played doubles together. Uh, we ended up playing a singles match against each other. And where's he from? He was from Belgium, Belgium. Oh, Holland actually, yeah. Holland, sorry. And um, yeah, it was just a, one of those weird matches where I felt his behaviour was not what a mate's behaviour should be. Well, he's, he was, he was, was he doing that European thing that sometimes they kind of pretend like they're out it was of the a, match? It was a half tank, he was out yeah. of the match, then he'd start trying, and then it was a tank back in, and I was a bit confused. I thought, he must have his flight book tonight, this is really weird. And then he just came on really strong at the end of the third set. And I couldn't get my stuff together, my act together, because you sort of check out. You think, this is over. And um, I shook his hand and I was like, mate, that was just weird. You know what? I thought we were, you know, we just won a big doubles tournament together. I thought I, thought I would expect better. And he said, oh, you're just a bad loser. And that's, I kind of stewed on that. We walked in the locker room. I said, I got an issue with you, you know, and it kind of blew up. But the funny thing about that was, Cashy could see that I was getting myself a little worked up. And Cashy's a lunatic, trust me. He got me in a bear hug. He walked, there's two locker rooms at Hong Kong at Victoria Park. He walked me, he got me in a bear hug, lifted me up off the ground, I couldn't move. He walked me into a shower cubicle of, the, of another, and he just stood there and he said, I'm here, you stay here till you calm down. You, you're being ridiculous. Uh, and I said, Cashy, this is, the role should be reversed. You're the crazy one, let me go. And he's like, no, nah, not till you calm down. 10 minutes went by, I was like, I'm calm. He goes, I don't think so. You know. <laughs> 15 minutes, he's like, you're all right now, you can go. I was like, Cashy, when did you become the voice of reason? Yeah, but, Pat, yeah. Pat Cash, Zen master. Pat Cash, yeah, I was like, but he was, he was right, I was wrong. Um, how'd you make the transition into coaching? Um, very naively. Yeah. Michael Stick rang me up when I, I, when I retired, it was kind of weird when I looked back upon it, I had no plan. I just had no plan what I was gonna do. And um, it, I, I was done, you know, I was ranked 110, I was going backwards. The game had evolved. You know, the guys like Agassi had come along and all of a sudden, you know, guys surviving and it was just getting tougher and tougher. And um, yeah, the writing was on the wall and I'd had a few sort of niggling injuries and I ended up with a stress fracture in my knee of the femur, knuckle of the femur, uh, that put me out. But I had no plan. Um, and out of the blue, I got a phone call from Goran Ivanisevic and Michael Stick. And I chose to go and do some work with Michael Stick. And he was at the tail end of his career. And I think because I had done well at the tail end of my career, I think he felt I had some... You uh, relate. Yeah, yeah, some magic elixir to maybe help him have that Indian summer. Um, but yeah, as I say, it was a naive foray into the world of coaching uh, because I learned very quickly. We had, a, we had a good relationship and he, you know, he, he paid me out. We, we were done after eight months. It just wasn't working. But he, we had a handshake deal 
And I said, Michael, you know, we both agreed that we're not moving together, you know, as a team and it's not going too well. And he said, I, I want to end it. And I said, I think you're right, you know, yeah, it's not working. Um, he said, but I'm going to pay you out for the rest of the year. And I said, well, you don't have to do that. I'm happy. Handshake deal, he paid me out. That's pretty solid, Stucky. That doesn't happen a lot. Um, so, you know, credit to Michael Stick on that one. But um, why I say I was naive, because I was trying to solve every problem through my eyes. The problem was there. I would relate it back to me and try to solve that problem. And I didn't have the ability to step into his shoes and see it from his perspective. And it was a big lesson for me going forward. Is that a quite a good lesson? Um, it's a good lesson for a coach. But is it a good lesson for relationships? Like, um, uh, oh, Stacky, look, I'm the last person to talk about relationships. I would have thought that that's a cracking lesson to learn for relationships. Yeah, oh, look, I, I relate it to coaching. Um, and I just... It, 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 to, to, to play well, there's so many things that have to be right. You know, you have to be physically right, emotionally right, stable off the court, happy in your relationship. It's like everything just has to align to play your very best tennis. And yeah, as I say, I was, I was looking at his situation and how a workman-like player like myself would, would get out of that, the doldrums. Mm. But how, how would a Wimbledon winner, a superstar, a guy with enormous amounts of talent, a very different physique to me, a very different game to me. Yeah, I just, I went about it badly, uh, and I admit that. Um, and, and Michael saw it, but as I say, he, he, he was a great character. And I tell you that story because when it comes to money and handshake deals, Stacky, as you go on in life, they, they can be fairly dubious. So for him to do that, and I said, Michael, I don't want the money, he had, he had my bank account, he put it in. That's big. Yeah. Did you, you coached again, you coached the Scud. How'd you, how'd it come that up? was more through Davis Cup, yeah. and it was more organic, and it was more just trying to build a relationship with Mark. Uh, was I officially his coach? Well, yes or no. Did, did I spend some time with him and just try to get a better relationship with him to get him into the Davis Cup fold? Because you remember with Newcomb and Roach, he was kind of out of it for yeah. a few years. Um, was that more his father than him? Yeah, I, th I think so. It was, yeah. yeah, there was a lot going on, obviously. Um, but look, I, I found Mark, he, Mark's a gentleman. He's a character. He, you know, he's... You want to get a guy on camera for a few stories, Mark Philippoussis. Uh, I'm told he won't tell the stories. He had a lively, lively uh, career. Um, what do you mean by lively? Just, what does that mean? Just plenty going on. But um, <laughs> look, I enjoyed his company and, and we ended up uh, winning a Davis Cup together with John Fitzgerald as captain and we beat uh, Spain in Melbourne. Uh, so yeah, as I say, was it coaching or was it more about relationship building and a bit of mentoring? But I certainly did spend a bit of time with him on the road and at his house. Uh, Leighton used to go down to Boca Raton and we'd, we'd have some training weeks down there. Um, so, yeah. Geez, the Scud had some high-profile girlfriends. Did they ever, like, did they ever create some interesting uh, scenarios for you? Not for me, but I'm sure they did for him. <laughs> I'll say no more. <laughs> um, going on to Davis Cup, I want to talk about it first as a player because I was really interested... Um, going through some of the research to find that in 1990 you had this incredible run where you're 6-0 through Davis Cup. You have some amazing wins. And then Neil Fraser, the captain, doesn't pick you for the final against the States and the Yanks go on to win on clay 3-2. Was that a, first of all, I want to know what the conversation was like with Neil Fraser and how did you take it? Okay, so if we go back, I lose that first match against Mats Willander. Yeah. Shocking, get belted, not good enough. Uh, I work hard, I get my opportunity again in a couple of years. I'm a better player. I've made the quarters of the semis of the Australian Open. I've, uh, I've won Adelaide. Um, we play a tie on grass. He picks me 
and I'm picked on merit this time. I'm, I'm, I'm the right guy. I'm ranked high. It's my surface. I play terribly. I'm nervous. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't overcome the nerves. So my record in my first 11 Davis Cup matches was two and nine. Two and nine. So I say to Fraze, why do you keep picking me? I'm, I'm terrible. Uh, you know, he saw something I didn't. Uh, but I was, believe it or not, I was having wins on the tour, playing the guys that I was beating easily on the tour and losing to them in Davis Cup. Why? Because I was too tight. I, was yeah. so, I, got, I just couldn't come to terms with the competition. It was too nervous. And finally, either I just got better or I, I relaxed and I went on that run that you mentioned in 90 and I think 92. I was very instrumental in winning a lot of matches to get the team to the final. But in both those finals, I was dropped, correctly dropped, because they played on clay. And there were better players than me on clay at the time, Richard Fromberg, Darren Cahill, and Pat Cash. So I, I was literally the number four player in Australia on clay. And Fraze made the right decision, and we, we joke about it, I rib him. But, you know, I only have praise for Neil Fraser because he, he was a wonderful influence in my career because, as I say, two and nine stacky, I should have been mm. demoted to something else. But yeah, he stuck by me. Um, I always liked to think I was a good team man. Um, so, you know, maybe I brought some other, I played a bit of doubles and maybe there was value there in having me. But yeah, my record was appalling. Um, but you are right, there was one year, I think it was 90, I won six live matches to get the team to the final and then got dropped. So that, that was a bitter pill to swallow, but I understood why. Um, maybe my, the thing I'm most interested in in terms of your Davis Cup career was when you were coach and I think Fitzy was captain and you're playing Australia versus France in Australia, final of the Davis Cup, Pat Rafter. Um, I remember it quite well. Uh, because I was hung over at schoolies and I watched the whole sort of the whole tie. Uh, Wednesday's first match, I think it's 1-1 going into the doubles. And I think that the, the thinking was, if we can knock over the French in the doubles, we are, we're home and hosed. Yeah, here. that was the thinking. Uh, and how did that play out? What, well, it played out gambles? badly because we, we, we went, we just went with our big guns, uh, Rafter and Hewitt. Uh, they ended up having a set point in the third set to go up two sets to one. And Cedric Pialine hit an incredible half volley down the line, which Leighton had to play on and left, and it landed on the line. Saved the break point. They won that third set and went on to win the match. And, uh, yeah, we, we ended up getting rolled on the final day. Uh, so, But why did Raft play the doubles? Because he couldn't, his shoulder was cooked, right? Yeah, but we, we felt like he was a better chance in the doubles to survive and win. Tell, and, me, about and the then we had Tell me about the crisis meeting, though, where you're trying to make that decision. Yeah, well, we, we, we had Leighton on day, day three, which we were pretty confident with. But then, obviously, you know, there was Pat. We'd rolled the dice, played him in the doubles. It didn't work. He, shoulder, he was taking massive doses of prednisone. He had a, a, like a bone stress, a precursor to a stress fracture probably up in this, the, the bone up here, I think it was. And he was on huge doses of prednisone to play. Um, and he had only practiced every second day. That was the rhythm. And we kind of broke that rhythm by playing him singles and doubles day, back to back. He was no good on day three. So we rolled the dice we, we, and lost. Um, metaphorically and you know, literally, yeah. we, we lost. Um, and of course, we copped a lot of criticism because we had Woodbridge in the wings and uh, Wayne Arthurs that we could have played in the doubles. Um, they went on to play doubles the next time against Spain and won handsomely. Mm. But what people do forget at the time is that Rafter and Hewitt that year had won a massive doubles match in uh, Brazil, in mm. Florianapolis, against Quirton and Melangini. And they, they were the two best players in the world. So there was, there was a fair bit of pedigree there. Hindsight proved us wrong, but if you, if you looked at everything that had transpired prior to that point, 
Yeah, we, we thought we were making an informed decision, but we definitely got it wrong. How did your stomach feel when Wayne Arthurs had to walk out and take on Nicholas uh, Well, everyone, you know, a lot of people said, oh, geez, poor Wayne. But I was like, well, he's a pro tennis player. Yeah. He, he must have lived his whole life for this. Yeah. This is the moment. I thought maybe he could do and it. And he actually played set pretty, H, well, he four sets. Yeah. He lost in four. And he played pretty well. But, you know, I think if you're a pro tennis player and you're in the team, bang, that's, that's the moment. And look, Wayne played well, but Escudet stung us. That tie, he was good. Like he, he played really well. And um, you got to remember going back a few years, Australia beat France in France. Philippoussis took care of, I think, Pauline and Santoro, whoever it was. Um, sometimes when you're the home team, the expectation's on you and there's pressure and tension. But you know, Wayne played well, but as I say, Escudet was the man that tie, it was his tie. And yeah, I, I, probably in hindsight, could we have saved Pat for the last day, played Wayne and Todd in the doubles? Yes. <laughs> in hindsight, yeah, we probably could have, but we, we made an informed decision. Um, the question I get asked uh, in tennis circles or around mates who love tennis, and whether it's nephews or my mum or whatever, is I get this asked more commonly than anything else, is, is Nick Kyrgios a tool? And I always say, this is, it's a really simplistic question because I've known him to be so many different people. He was the most charming athlete I've ever come across at the first Wimbledon I covered when he went on that amazing run to the quarterfinals and other times you know he doesn't want to bar me he doesn't want to talk to me or give me an interview and um, he's been standoffish with the media you know for years now you've worked with Nick on a number of levels who's Nick Kyrgios in terms of the person that you know oh gee that's interesting you say that Stacky because I, I think well most of us are pretty complex um, I think the big thing for Nick was it, it just seemed like his world changed too quickly after that Rafa win um, he beat Rafa at Wimbledon that year, and you, you were there. Yeah. It was, remember that match? It was insane. It was, it was a golden match. It was yeah. perfect. And all of a sudden, it, it wasn't just the, the win. It was the manner in which he won. It was like this new kid had arrived. And I think uh, there was a lot of eyes on him, uh, a lot of expectation, a lot of media. I don't, I don't think he enjoyed it. I don't think he's enjoyed it ever since. And then, of course, there's been some negative media, which then has caused him to be quite prickly. So his relationship with the press hasn't been the best at times. And look, he is a complex character, and I think you see that in his results to a degree. And there's an element of him on the court that he, he reminds me a little bit of Pat Cash. You know, the, the matches that he's played against Federer, think Miami, think even the Labor Cup, beat Djokovic back to back. He seems to like the big occasion. He's been really good in Davis Cup this year, and yet. Not unlike Cashy, sometimes against the lesser player, you don't see that same level of tennis. So how, how you described him and, and you know, your, your interactions with him, that's sort of how he's been on the tour, even on court. You sort of get this mixed bag. You get the brilliance sometimes matched with the indifference. So look, Nick's definitely on a journey. Um, his game, he should be very comfortable in his skin because he, he's a top five player every day of the week. Um, there's no doubt about it. So he, he should feel very comfortable with his with his place on tour. And I think whether he likes it or not, uh, Roger Federer, 36 years of age, what's Rafa, 32 now, you know, Novak, Andy, they're pushing past 30. At some point, uh, there's gonna be a passing of the baton, Nick Kyrgios, uh, Zverev, uh, you got Dominic Team. you got some players there that I think the tour, the ATP tour and the public are looking at as the next generation. So they're kind of big shoes to fill, aren't they? Yeah, So do you buy that he doesn't like tennis? I think he likes tennis. I don't think you could have played this much tennis to get to a point. I don't think he likes a lot of the byproducts of tennis. Such as? Uh, well, the media, the yeah. pressure, the expectation, all eyes on you. Um, but 
Look, I think the big thing for Nick is he seems to be, if you looked at his performances in Davis Cup this year, they were stellar. Uh, even the, you know, the Belgium match, which he lost against Goffin, it was everything that you wanted. Absolute effort, um, you know, played. He's a great team man. He mixes well with the team. He responds to Leighton as captain. And look, I'll be honest with you, I think it's potentially his relationship with Leighton that might prove quite telling, with Leighton as a mentor, to, to just help guide him and I think find someone that he can travel with as a confidant, as a mentor, and yeah, absolutely maximise his potential. And I think the thing for me, Stacky, is you know, when I watch a, a young tennis player, the big thing for me is I just would love them to be as good as they can be. Because I just know, and I've seen it with some players, you know, I'm 55 now, you, you go through a few cycles, you see a few players come and go, and I, I see some players that have regret, mm-hmm. and I think it really hurts them. It hurts them for a long time. Um, and you also realise too that Tennis, tennis is like a 10 or 15 year window of your life. There's a, there's a line in that book, Stacky, that you read a handful of summers where Gordon Forbes said, I once beat Rod Laver and the press made a big fuss about it and everyone made a big fuss about me. But when I look back upon it, it doesn't seem that important. And, and that's how I feel a bit, you know, the, the years that you play tennis are huge. And when you're in them, you think it's everything. But as time goes by and you have a wife and you have your four kids and you have your grandkid and your parents are getting older and you realise life's a lot bigger than your tennis. It's, it's, it's a small compartment of what you did. It doesn't define you. So, you know, to, to think that you threw everything at it, had a great time and maximised your potential, to me, seems and sounds important. And I've seen some players, some great players that I think haven't maximised their potential and have regret, and it kind of chips away at them for a long time. So sometimes when you're looking at the, at the likes of a young Nick Kyrgios or a Thanasi Kokonakis who's injured, you just hope that the moon can align with the stars and that they can A, enjoy themselves, and B, maximise their, their potential. Do you worry when you give an interview like this that the media are going to take it and put twists, uh, take little glimpses of what we've said and, it's, and look, paint a certain narrative? Yeah, and it? I guess it's interesting, isn't it? We both worked at Fox yeah. and there's a digital department there and their headline is key, not the content. It's, it's the headline. Yeah. Uh, people click onto those headlines, that's important to Fox and you know that's the way the world works now. And look, Stacky... I'm doing this, I probably prefer not to do interviews. Yeah. I'm doing this interview because we work together and I like you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I stand by what I say today, but I'm well aware that something I, I say can be misconstrued or a sentence can be turned into a headline mm. with no massive content behind it. And sometimes I read a headline unrelated to tennis of another sport, sounds r- rather dramatic. And I read the article and I go, I'm just trying to connect the two and I don't quite see it. So yeah, I, I hear what you're saying and it, it, it could happen, <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> We touched on um, on Nick, and I want to ask you about Bernie as well. Even with Bernie and Nick, really, how much should the narrative around them in public and in the media be around mental health? Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a that's a bigger question, and you know, probably not one that I'm qualified to talk about. But nor I, but I just feel like it's very skin deep. Like I yeah. feel like sports fans watch these these guys play a couple of matches a year, and then feel as though that there's a, a position to have a certain opinion on the type of person yeah. that these guys are, which neglects the wider picture of who they are and That's why they're at that yeah. particular point in their career. I actually have had a few conversations with journalists where I say, I sometimes feel like there's a story there that's really low-hanging fruit, but there's a bigger story there. You know, it's, it's a story about professional sport. You know, it's, it's about agents, managers, federations, money. You know, there's a bigger story there and... Um, We've just started a well-being department at Tennis Australia. Um, none too soon, you know. 
the well-being of an athlete, um, the idea and the ITF's looking at it now that, gee, success at a young age at any price, is it worth it? Is it worth it in the long run? And tennis is littered with stories of prodigies, teenage prodigies, where it just hasn't ended well. Jennifer Capriati, uh, you know, for example, um, Mary Pierce. You know, there's Andre Agassi in his book talks about his relationship with his father and, and the pressure that he felt and the, you know, he, he literally hated the game for a period of years. So, you know, it, there's a cautionary tale there, isn't there? And there's a bigger story there than petulant behavior because people don't get out of bed feeling indifferent or angry. You know, anger is a secondary emotion. There's, there's obviously a backstory, there's a lot going on. And, you know, sometimes I think there's, there's a good article to be written there about professional sport and the ability for a governing body or a federation to kind of create a slow burn. You know, I like the idea that kids can actually go to college, get a degree and then play tennis. Now that sounds a little bit idealistic, but um, you know, maybe everyone would be better equipped to deal with the, the pressures that are coming. You raised an interesting point there that is something I wanted to ask you about as well. I was surprised when I got around these tennis circles that I saw Grand Slam winners, all-time greats of the game, who to me, from the outside, didn't seem like well-adjusted, happy people. Do you think that tennis is a sport that creates well-adjusted, happy people? No, no, it doesn't. Not at all. Um, I'll say one thing, you know, back in my day, um, you know, without, without coaches and managers and wives, you know, all of the, the people that surround a player these days, um, I played the semi-finals of the Australian Open in 1987 with nobody in my player's box. Now, that makes me sound like a loser, but... I rang my parents, mum, dad, you want to come down there in Canberra? No, we're happy, we're watching on seven, it's all good. Uh, got, we got our lives, you know, <laughs> we're busy, but we'll definitely watch the match and good luck. Hope you go well. Yeah, hope you go well. <laughs> Tell us how you went. Good luck, sir. Um, so, <laughs> you know, at different times, Stacky, but also what I'm, what I'm getting to is there was a lot of regulation on tour. So if your behaviour was sort of a little skewed, you know, the, the rest of the field that sort of bring you back. Well, hang on, who's regulating you? Not the ATP, not the WTA, no, the, locker the locker room. The players. Tell me about the locker room regulation. Well, yeah, I mean, if you kind of got in someone's grill or your behavior wasn't quite right, there was quite often a locker room confrontation. Um, regulation, yeah. you know, players just, re and as I say, you know, the tour had an ability, if a player was flying a little bit too high, they kind of dragged him back in the locker room. If he's feeling a bit low, a bunch of players usually picked him up. You know, it's. It's kind of like we're all in it together. Nowadays, I feel with, with the entourages, and we talk about that one honest voice, that one person that you can have an honest conversation with. Can you have it with yourself or can you have it with that mentor coach that you trust and then do something about it? You know, if those conversations aren't happening, well, you're living in a bubble. You're living in a bubble. And I think, you know, you've got to be careful when you're on the tour that it's real. Roger's real. Rafa's real. Now, why are the next generation not beating them up yet? I believe character plays a massive part in tennis because tennis is all about dealing with the errors and dealing with adversity. Does anybody deal with it better than Roger and Rafa? No. In different ways. They deal with it in different ways, but they are the two absolute benchmarks, uh, in my opinion. Um, so does tennis prepare you for the rest of the world? No, it does not. You know, to, to work in the media, to go and work um, outside of tennis, you're going to have to mix with a whole range of people and you may no, may, long, may no longer be the superstar and everybody wants you. You may have to be a cog in the wheel, you know, and you've got to be able to work with people and let certain things wash over you. And, uh, you know, I think that's a tough transition for a lot of players to make if they have lived in that bubble. Tell me about the ecosystem of the entourage box, because it seems to me that it can't be, how, how healthy can it be to have 
10 people in, in the box that you're effectively their meal ticket. How, how much well, honesty are you getting from that? Full, full stop, the big problem with tennis is that the coach is paid by the player. That is a flawed system. So you've got to consider Rafa's uncle, who was his coach since the age of four, is paid via the family business by a third party, and he, he is the patriarch. He runs the show, and Rafa, good mate of mine, Brad Druitt, who's sadly no longer with us, was uh, running the, the Shanghai Masters. Rafa's going up to the 23rd floor for a function, gets in the elevator, Brad's in there, Rafa gets in there, his uncle gets in two floors later and says, Rafa, are you wearing that to this function? Rafa's number one in the world. He goes, see, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, no, 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 go and change. You gotta, you, you gotta do better than that. So Rafa goes and changes, comes back in the suit, attends the function. You know, so th the idea that, you know, you, you have that voice, that mentor that is guiding you and making decisions that you may not always agree with, but are in your best interests is important. And the idea that a, that a player pays the coach, uh, the manager is beholden to the player, he's making 20% of everything that he generates. And for a big player, you know, like a Maria Sharapova, that is a lot of money. So yeah, where, where's that honest voice coming? Where's the mirror? You know, where is that in the entourage? You touched on uh, Rafa there. I just want to ask you, with Rafa and Roger, as we get towards the end of this interview, are they, um, is their return to the top of the pinnacle of the sport good for the sport? Yes, it's great for the sport. As long as they're around, uh, you know, I, I think we're in pretty good shape. I think we're going to miss, there'll be a void when they go. And it's, look, it's not uncommon. We, we talk about what great people they are. They are great players. They are brilliant players. Uh, think of Andre Agassi's Indian summer as a player. Mm. Why? Not because he's a great bloke, he's a great player. As was Pete Sampras, that Indian summer that he experienced, you know, winning a major, you know, at the, at the twilight of his career. There, there's something about class and quite often they, they have a bit of a dip they reassess, they take a deep breath, they're comfortable with everything they've achieved, and they almost play with the casino's chips for a year or two, and you just see what we're seeing with Roger to a degree, and um, yeah, we're almost seeing him at his very best. When you took over the, your role, uh, high performance, performance manager, you told me earlier. Performance of director. Uh, no, performance of director. Director, director of, of performance. performance, that's right. You took it over from Pat Rafter, and when he was in the role, I had no idea he was a Joe Hockey fan, but he was, said he was gonna end the, uh, end the culture of entitlement. Did he say that smoking a big cigar at the back <laughs> of Parliament House? Is that what he said? Well, I'm not interested in where he said it, but has it happened? Is there still a, a culture of entitlement? No, Pat made some hard decisions and they were he was fairly unpopular for a few of the decisions that he made. Um, but he was probably the only guy that could mm. with the profile and uh, the, you know, the pedigree as a former world number one and a Grand Slam winner. He made some tough calls that I think a lot of people would have struggled to make, um, had the courage to make. And he was only in the role for two years, but yeah, he was certainly pretty pivotal. And the, the system that is in place now and what is on offer to the player players is much more measured uh, than it was in the past, in my opinion. Do you, what would you like to have achieved at which time you leave the role? I guess um, I, I feel that when I played tennis and when I'm on a tennis court, I love it. It's a time of my life. You know, I'm, I'm hitting tennis balls, the sun's shining, I'm sweating, I'm competing, whatever. I love it. I, I, you know, I even like getting out on court and just, just working with players. I, I get a kick out of it. And to me, sometimes within the coaching fraternity, within our federation and within the playing fraternity, I'm not seeing the love, I'm not seeing the joy. Um, is, is, it, is there too many eyes on, on the kids? Is there, is there too much pressure? Would we 
be better off having a slower burn and leaving them to their own devices and let you know let the boys become men before we start talking about performance. So I, I guess I'd like to get a handle on that and I'd like to leave the coaching fraternity and the playing fraternity just in a slightly happier place. I hope you're enjoying the Stack Report brought to you by MJ Bale. We couldn't possibly do this project without them. They've been good enough to give us a space, a setting to record in. It looks pretty schmick for those of you looking on video. On top of that, they give us some fantastic suits for myself and our guests. And also a big thank you to 24, a great sports app that's really changing the landscape of Australian sports media. Make sure you download the app. But for now, it's back to the Stack Report. Have I been candid, Stacky? You tell me. Yeah. I feel like I have. I think you have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is your name actually Wally? Your full e name? Ian Walter. So this is the thing. My girlfriend always wants to know why you're actually Wally as mm. opposed to Ian. Probably a little bit, you know, personality driven. <laughs> you, you find your name. Um, so basically, uh, Australian mother, Austrian father. Yeah. Little bit of a dispute over what I should be called. Uh, <laughs> Mum goes for Ian. Dad wants Walter. That was his brother's name. Um, so I'm, I'm officially, officially Ian Masur. There right. is no Walter on my passport. So your father won it? On my birth certificate, excuse birth me. Certificate. There, is no, there is no Walter. Um, but he just goes, look, I'm not having Ian. Call him Walter. He wins the battle at home. <laughs> it's got to be a rare one, doesn't he it? He wins the battle, yeah. He didn't win many, but he won that one. So I go to school. In five minutes, Walter became Wally. I got two more things for you. What's the best anecdote that I haven't asked you about? Your favourite story that I haven't, you haven't told? Uh, favourite story? Um, Could be anything. Federer, Leighton. I, I guess. I haven't spoken to you much at all about Leighton, which is. I, yeah. Um, well, look, there's volumes to talk about Leighton because, you know, he, he was electricity in a glass jar. Phenomenal. A guy that was totally relaxed the two weeks before Davis Cup final. Day of, don't touch him, you get electric shock. Like, Pat Rafter, the opposite. Wound as tight as a spring the two weeks prior, match day quite relaxed. Mm. So very different characters, but, you know, Leighton's a, he's an interview in itself. But look, you know, some anecdotes. Sometimes I just feel like you, you go through tennis and you, somebody, how did I get here? You know, there was just some, uh, I met the Pope, you know, I'm not even Catholic, you know, and I go to the Vatican and I had an audience with the Pope. Like, how does that happen? Well, how was he? A good bloke? He seemed like a Which decent Pope? bloke. Uh, John Paul, the Polish Pope, who came to Australia for Brisbane Expo. He was quite um, forward-thinking as yeah. far as Popes go, wasn't he? Yeah, it? so we had a, we had an, I had an audience with the Pope amongst about 16 other people. Um, make it sound like it was just me. But um, we representatives from each continent playing the Italian Open uh, spoke to us about being ambassadors and, uh, you know, spoke about the world and had a bit of a chat to him about coming down to Brisbane for Expo or whatever... World Trade Fair, whatever it was. Um, so you, you're sort of sitting there in the Sistine Chapel as a non-Catholic going, how, how did I get here? Um, I remember playing golf with um, one of the members of Pink Floyd. Um, what? Yeah, Tell was, me that. Yeah, well, he, he lived out at Southampton. Um, I played golf with two members of Pink Floyd. It's just weird, you know. <laughs> it's another brick in the wall. Yeah, and I'm, I'm with Cashy in London and, you know, I met... You know, I met the other guy from Pink Floyd. He's like, what, how do, why is this happening? Um, I was in a lift in Manchester one year and I sort of looked down and there was a guy, he had lizard skin boots and leather pants and like this leather vest and a hat. And I started looking. It's an odd outfit for Manchester and this guy looks familiar. And there was an Irish girl next to him with red hair and she goes, oh, what, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm playing Manchester Open tennis. She goes, oh, tennis. She said, do you like music? I said, yeah, I do. She goes, well, would you like to come to U2 tonight? And uh, 
it's the edge. You know, so there I am, like nine rows from the front, watching you two. You know, with like nine thousand people in an indoor stadium, and I think they had Lou. There's a satellite of love too, and Lou Reed comes out. Uh, you know, so all all of these you, you, these things just happen, and you think, how did I get here? You know, one night I'm having dinner in New York, and you know, the the guy's he, he's worth sixty five billion dollars. Mm. He, he's you know, one of the wealthiest men in the world, and you you just think all of the opportunities that tennis affords you, and sometimes you just go, how did I get here? Incredible. Mm. Well, to finish, you got one more opportunity. You get to do our short and sharp, which is just fast question sure. speed round. Right. Can I have a quick drink? Yeah, go. Yeah, have just a, a quick a sip. Yeah, water. And just remember, you just got to go as fast as you can, really. All right, so it's like word association. Yeah, All right, I'll pretty try much. To be, I'll try to be honest. Here we go. Favorite current day player to watch who isn't Federer? Uh, Rafa. Pick one: Laver or Federer? Laver. Kyrgios or Tomic? Uh, Kyrgios. Wimbledon or the Australian Open? Wimbledon. Favorite worldwide drinking spot? Ah, uh, yeah, look, I'll say the dog and fox. <laughs> if you could have one player as your doubles partner in a slam final, who you John McEnroe. Favourite TV show right now? Uh, it's Boardwalk Empire. It's been on for a while, but I've just gotten onto it. Yeah, I thought it was done. Uh, yeah. Tennis better spectacle with wooden rackets or modern day? <sighs> I, look, I'd have to say modern day, but we've gone a little too far. Favourite book on sport? Um, I would say uh, the Norman Mailer treatise on the rumble in the jungle. Uh, what was that book called? Norman Mailer. The Fight. Yes, that is brilliant. There, he, he writes something about Muhammad Ali. In, he, captures, he captures something in two lines that, to me, sums up the neurosis of the professional athlete. It's a great book. Can Norman Mailer, The Fight. I, I won't get it right, but um, yeah. it's almost, it's, he talks about the child becoming a man but has not yet grown up and is altogether in love with himself. Yeah. But it, 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 paraphrasing. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Good though. But uh, read the book, The Fight. I read it last Christmas. It was yeah. great. Favourite book not on sport? Um, Favourite book not on sport was probably The Grapes of Wrath. Sydney or Melbourne? Sydney. Anzac Day or Boxing Day? Uh, Anzac Day. Beers with Fitzy and the boys or quiet dinner with Suze, the missus? Uh, if Suze might hear this, I'll say quiet dinner with Suze. Tomato sauce or barbecue sauce? Tomato. In the cupboard or the fridge? The tomato sauce in the fridge. Who has more talent in their youth, Kyrgios or Hewitt? Define talent. Discipline's a talent. Uh, oh, different, different talents, but um, wow. Leighton won a slam it as a teenager, mm. I'll say Leighton. Best major in the world? I'd go with Wimbledon. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. The greatest match you've ever seen? Uh, Borg McEnroe at Wimbledon, I think it's 81, and then the epic uh, finishing in the twilight, uh, Rafa Roger. What Biggest waste Wimbledon. of talent? Oh. Biggest waste of talent. Um, Gail Monfils. Yeah, never got there. Uh, would you rather Sampras or Agassi? I'd rather Sampras's serve, but I wouldn't mind hitting the ball like Agassi from the back of the court. Can I go with both? Sharapova or Hingis? I'd say Hingis. Who's the greatest? The artist. The artist. Who's the greatest of all time, Serena or Roger? I think statistically, Serena's the greatest of all time. And the better player, Rafter or Hewitt? 
God, Stacky, is that the last question? <laughs> yeah. That's a horrible question. Rafter well, or they're, Hewitt? They're very different. Serve volley and return and yeah. and D. Look, I'll, I'll, yeah, you're right. They're, they're, they're night and day in the way they went about their business. Uh, I will say Leighton because he, I think he won more titles yeah, you, outside of the slams. You would have a better read on that than but I. But God, it's, it's a tight run affair. Well, you've been I very, loved them both. You've been very good to join us at the MJ Bale headquarters, courtesy of 24, to talk to us for well over an hour on what's been an amazing career in life. Thank you so much. We come back, actually? Well, I feel like we've got more to do. Stacky, I really enjoyed it. And I think, given the surrounds, a snifter of brandy and a cigar would really cap off the afternoon. Well, let's, figure, let's go get it done. All right. Well, that was the Stack Report for another week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. Without those ratings, without those reviews, without those subscriptions, we can't continue to bring you this fantastic program. We hope it's fantastic. We certainly hope you are enjoying it. And if you are, as I say, go subscribe, rate, review. Also, download the 24 app. And importantly as well, show your support by getting around MJ Bale. They're fantastic clothes, uh, stores all around Australia. But for this week, that is the end of the Stack Report.